everybody, my name is Rachel Rydald and I'm Community Librarian for Local Studies for Norfolk Libraries. Today's presentation, Women's Rights in Norwich, is part of a series of feminist history events linked to our online exhibition, Unfinished Business, The Fight for Women's Rights in Norfolk. It was created with support from the British Library, who are showing their Unfinished Business exhibition currently, when open, um, and this exhibition explores how feminist activism in the UK has its roots in the complex history of women's rights. Today, we're going to highlight some particular items from the Norfolk Heritage Centre collection, starting by quickly looking at some of the pioneering women from the early 20th century who fought for women's rights locally, and then we'll focus on the women's liberation movement, the fight for equality that took place from 1970 into the 1990s. I want to thank the women that have shared their stories and collections with us. Much of the material that we're going to view today was kindly donated by Kay Warbrick and also Ruth Pearson, Val Stryker, Steph Simpson and Liz Gibson. We've done our best to research and interpret this history, but please feel free to comment and share your thoughts and memories. So this image shows um, a, an exhibit from the Unfinished Business Exhibition at the British Library. And the British Library have divided their exhibition into three sections, and that's also how I've structured this presentation today. The first section is body, and this examines how women's bodies have been sites of debate and resistance. Asserting control over the body and how it's represented has been central to struggles for women's equality for a long time. Secondly, there's mind, and this section examines how women have fought to be recognised as intellectually equal to men. Struggles for education have been at the heart of the fight for women's rights, but battles for equal pay, equal employment and political representation have been just as important. And the third section is voice, and this section explores how, despite all attempts to silence and misrepresent them, women have found radical ways to make themselves heard in different spheres. We're lucky enough to be part of British Library's Living Knowledge Network, and this is a partnership which allows for Norfolk Libraries to link up with the British Library's current exhibition and display a touring version. Because of the COVID-19 restrictions this year, we're unable to have a physical exhibition, but instead we've created an online version which focuses on the Norfolk women and campaigns that have fought for change. This website, URL can be found in the description of this video. So today we're going to look at some of the archival material from the collections at Norfolk Heritage Centre and how we use this material in our online exhibition. A lot of the content has come from our ephemera collection and this refers to posters, leaflets, um, material which is not designed to be kept but actually tells us a great deal about social history. So this image here shows um, the forum, the space in Norwich where Norwich Millennium Library um, is housed. And Norfolk Heritage Centre, for those of you that haven't visited us, um, we're on the top floor of the Millennium, Millennium Library and um, you can see us in this picture here. So this is what it looks like when you enter um, Norfolk Heritage Centre. We're the sister site of, of Norfolk Record Office and how we differ from the Record Office is that we collect and preserve printed and published material about the history of Norfolk. So that's things like books, maps, photographs, newspapers and also, like I mentioned, ephemera. The 
public side of the Heritage Centre is, is totally the tip of the iceberg. And most of our collection are kept in our temperature and humidity controlled store, which you can see on this image on the left. So this is behind the scenes at the Heritage Centre and somewhere that's only accessible to staff. And a lot of the women's liberation material that we're going to view today comes from this ephemera collection. And you can see the acid free boxes that we house this collection in, in the image on the right. So before we jump into looking at the women's liberation movement, I wanted to talk briefly about some um, women that were very pioneering and groundbreaking um, in Norwich and in Norfolk. And this image here, this shows Ethel Coleman. And Ethel was the second of Jeremiah James Coleman's four daughters, uh, Coleman, the mustard manufacturing family. Ethel was a supporter of women's suffrage, but she was also a devout Christian. And this meant that she disagreed with the violent protest aspects of the suffragette movement and was a suffragist. She also became a director of a missionary society before becoming one of the first women deacons at Princess Street United Reformed Church. And this made her one of the first female deacons in any congregational church. Around this time, she also joined the Labour Party. And Ethel might be familiar to you because on the 31st of October 1923, she was appointed Norwich's first Lady Lord Mayor. And actually, she was the first Lady Lord Mayor anywhere in the country. She appointed her sister Helen as her Lady Mayoress. And Ethel and Helen were completely dedicated to improving the welfare and education for Coleman um, factory workers. So for men and women equally. And in 1923, Ethel and Helen purchased Suckling House, which is where Cinema City in Norwich is now, as a memorial to their late sister, Laura Stewart. And they presented the building to the city in 1925 um, to be used for educational purposes. The reason I'm talking about Ethel Coleman today is that um, in 2020, between lockdowns, we were invited to the Princess Street United Reformed Church um, to rehome some very special books which had been found uh, while they were emptying the church uh, because it's closing. Um, and this image here shows a Bible that was owned by Ethel Coleman herself during the time when she was a deacon at the church. And it's a very special item because it's full of her handwriting and her annotations are scribbled in the margins throughout the Bible. And you can also see her um, the inscription when it was given to her on the left hand side. So among the books donated to us from Princess Street Church was this family Bible, which was owned by Laura Stewart and her husband. Um, Laura Stewart was Ethel and Helen's sister, and it was gifted after Laura's death uh, to Trous Congregational Church by Ethel and Helen. And that's what the inscription on the right hand side um, is explaining to us. The Coleman sisters were very accomplished Norwich women and Laura Stewart was actually appointed the first ever female magistrate in 1920. But sadly, this was only a couple of months before her premature death. This image shows Ethel, Helen and Laura, the three Coleman sisters, Ethel on the left um, in her regalia as Lady Lord Mayor of Norwich. 
So Edith Willis was um, the Coleman sisters' cousin, and she was another very accomplished Norwich women, woman. Um, and she helped to form the Norwich Women's Suffrage Society in 1909. This was affiliated to the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS, and she became the secretary of the branch. Um, and actually, in the 1911 census, Edith is recorded as visiting her cousin Ethel um, and her occupation on the census is listed as honorary secretary of the Women's Suffrage Society. So Edith and her cousins, the Coleman sisters, founded an NUWSS office and shop at 7 Brig Street in Norwich in 1910. And it was there that they sold badges and pins and books to finally uh, to financially support their involvement in the suffrage movement. Um, Edith was also a very successful photographer in her own right, and she actually had selected photographs exhibited at the Royal Photographic Society exhibitions um, between 1906 and 1912. And Edith's work um, was recognised in the Rosie's Plaques um, Guerrilla Art Project, and in 2019, a group of women um, who were part of the Common Lot Theatre Group came up with the idea to create um, blue plaques and plant them around the city to represent women's history and the um, places that were important to the development of women's history in the city. And this plaque was uh, left at seven on Brig Street to show where um, Edith's suffrage shop was established. And you can find out more about the Rosie's Plaques project in our online exhibition and the link to that is in the um, video description below. So for the remainder of today's um, video, we're going to look at the women's liberation movement. And the women's liberation movement was a radical expression of uh, long-standing campaigns for equal rights, opportunities and choices for women. The women's liberation movement grew out of and was very heavily influenced by um, anti-colonial politics, trade union activism, the New Left, the Campaign for Civil Rights, the Peace Movement and the American and European student movements that were happening at this time. And I'd recommend if you want to find out more about the women's liberation movement, visiting the British Library's Sisterhood and After project website. Um, which you can find if you Google it, and I'll also put the link to it in the text below. So in February 1970, 600 delegates held the first national conference of the Women's Liberation Movement at Ruskin College in Oxford. And it was here that they discussed their initial demands. So they made four initial demands. Number one, for equal pay. Number two, for equal educational and job opportunities. Number three, for free contraception and abortion on demand. And four, for free 24-hour nurseries. These demands were printed on banners and were also put on a petition which was given to Prime Minister Ted Heath um, on the 6th of March in 1971. And this is when 4,000 women marched through London for International Women's Day. There were further conferences uh, organised by the Women's Liberation Movement and at these they made three further demands. So altogether they, they created seven central demands to the movement. The fifth demand that was made at Edinburgh in 1974 was for legal and financial independence for all women. 
the right, uh, sorry, the sixth um, demand was the right to a self-defined sexuality and end to discrimination against lesbians. And that was made at Edinburgh in 1974 as well. And then the seventh demand was freedom for all women from intimidation by the threat or use of violence or sexual coercion, regardless of marital status and an end to the laws, assumptions and institutions which perpetuate male dominance and aggression to women. And this uh, demand was made at a conference in Birmingham in 1978. So much of the information that I'm going to talk about today came from a really brilliant essay which was written by Sue Bruley um, in the Women's History Review. And it was called Women's Liberation at the Grassroots, a view from some English towns circa 1968 to 1990. Bruley's essay uses many oral histories and other biographical accounts. So her conclusions may not be representative of all the lived experiences of women from this period. After the first conference in 1970, the women's liberation movement didn't immediately develop effective national leadership or strategy beyond these seven demands that, that we've just talked about. There was an early attempt at unifying the movement um, with the National Coordinating Committee, but this was disbanded by 1972. Women in the uh, women's liberation movement in the UK regarded themselves as acting collectively, not individually, and this was really important to them. And they didn't want the media to latch on to any particular feminists or attempt to elevate any particular women to uh, leadership roles. So when you look at the UK movement in comparison to the US movement, there are far fewer famous figureheads um, compared to the US movement where you've got people like Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan. The women's liberation movement in the UK operated at a really strong grassroots level and it was autonomous from any one political party or organisation. But this lack of central leadership meant that local groups were free to focus on their own initiatives and the priorities within their own communities, um, led by the central demands um, of the movement. And local organisation usually took on the form of women's centres, workshops, playgroups, campaigning and study groups and women's refuges as well. And communication was vital, so newsletters played a really, really important role in linking these groups and initiatives together. The Norwich Women's Liberation Movement group was set up in 1970 after the first national conference. And at first, average att uh, attendance was about 20 women and they became a consciousness raising study group at first. And you can see in this poster on the left, um, the group met every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Charing Cross Centre and the discussion programme is listed below. So they talked about things like young women's oppression and um, book reviews and um, our mothers and ourselves. Norwich Women's Liberation Movement also gave talks to um, other women's groups like church women's groups, the Housewives Register and the Women's Institute. But they had to choose their language really carefully, um, for example, referring to motherhood rather than referring to abortion outright, um, for example. As the movement developed in Norwich, different groups of women focused on the various demands of the movement with some crossover. And women created consciousness raising groups, they ran events to educate and support women, and they also organised non-violent direct action to call for societal and political change. Like all social movements, 
The women's liberation movement had a life and a momentum of its own, and by the mid-1970s, it had grown into a, a national moment of activism. So one of the major demands of, of the women's liberation movement was for women-only physical spaces um, in which they could hold meetings and also collectively develop ideas. And a lot of the time, this was people's homes. Um, Norwich Women's Centre developed from discussions about the, the need to provide a non-institutional space to offer services for women, such as pregnancy testing, as well as advice and support. And in 1977, the Women's Centre first operated out of premises, which was Norwich Community Arts Centre on St Benedict Street. And it was here that they rented a small room for £15 every three months. This is a quote from one of the Women's Centre um, newsletters, which you can see on the left here. The Women's Centre was formed in the 1970s by a group of women who came to realise that as women we are unfairly treated by society and not allowed equality in many areas of our lives. We started the Women's Centre so women could have a space where these truths are recognised and so that we could get information about our rights. The centre is also intended to give a home to groups campaigning for women's rights. And the Women's Centre moved between premises um, relatively often, uh, including a squat on Argyle Street, um, which was kind of communally owned at that time, before settling on Exchange Street in the late 1980s. And it reached its peak really between 1987 and 1990, and over 100 women used the centre every week during this time. Sue Bruley in her essay argues that the women's movement in Norwich was built around the women's centre. Um, but from talking to women involved in campaigning locally, it was not necessarily the case, um, but it was still a very important hub for women to access information and advice. So looking at activism in this period, it's apparent there are some very big national campaigns which penetrated across the whole women's liberation community. We're going to look at some of these campaigns today using the British Library's distinctions of body, mind and voice. Feminists of this era recognised that women's healthcare and the understanding of women's bodies was under-researched and misunderstood. A long history of female oppression and patriarchal family structures has meant that women didn't have the autonomy or control over their own bodies or medical choices. And in fact, recently in the book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Pires, which was published, I think, in 2019, she argued that medical knowledge and understanding is still so skewed towards the male body as the default, which can have a very negative effect on the medical treatment of women. In the early 1980s, a group of women in Norwich recognised the need for better women's healthcare in the city and started campaigning for the provision of a well-woman clinic. And well-woman clinics were health centres which were staffed by women, which provided women's health information and advice. The first well-woman clinic campaign meeting was held in Norwich on the 21st of November 1983. And you can see the poster on the left for the meeting um, held at Norwich Central Library. At this time, well-woman clinics were becoming uh, established elsewhere in the country. They aimed to reach women who were nervous about discussing their specific health issues with a male doctor and also to develop a more general understanding about women's health and healthcare provision. 
they weren't ever intended to replace GP services, but to provide additional advice and support for women. The campaign in Norwich was met with opposition and resistance from local GPs. Um, and in 1984, there were only 12 female GPs in Norwich out of a total of 76. And far more female than male doctors at this time were working part time or were in their posts temporarily. Many male GPs didn't believe that female patients were deterred from seeking medical advice. But surveys of patients at the time showed that many women were indeed reluctant. The Norwich Well Women Clinic opened uh, in West Pottergate Health Centre in 1985. And you can see on the poster on the right, it was open on Monday evenings and Friday afternoons. The female staff at the clinic provided advice on contraception, family planning, sexual health and the menopause, as well as mental health and emotional support. And importantly, it put pressure on GP surgeries to provide more information and literature specifically about women's health. And for the first time, it really made it a priority. Questioning the representation of women's bodies in media and culture has been central to struggles for gender equality. And the depiction of women and their bodies for the enjoyment of male viewers, this objectification of women, has been protested by feminists for decades. The theatre poster on the right from our collection is advertising a play called Page Three Girls that toured to Norwich Theatre Royal in 1988. At this time, Tabloid newspapers had been showing nude or partially clothed images of women on page three since the 1970s. Um, a couple of years before um, Page Three Girls came to Norwich in 1986, the MP Claire Short brought the Indecent Displays Newspapers Bill before the House of Commons to try to ban sexually provocative images of women in newspapers, um, but was unsuccessful. A group of women called the Women's International Terrorist Coven from Hell, Norwich Branch, objected to the performance of Page Three Girls and they staged a bomb scare at the Theatre Royal, which was then evacuated. And they wrote this anonymous letter, which was published in one of the Women's Centre newsletters. And it reads, to whom it may concern, the bomb scare at the Theatre Royal on Monday, June 27th was an action in protest at the staging of the extremely offensive Page Three Girls. This so-called play is nothing more than cheap titillation for the male voyeur, which, like all pornography, is degrading to women. Monday was only the first step. Any further productions of this kind in our city can expect to be treated with the same contempt. This was part of a series of direct actions by women against the objectification of female bodies, which included ripping up pornographic magazines and ripping up page three at, uh, from newspapers at newsagents, and meaning that they were unable to sell these magazines. Body and mind are intrinsically linked in our understanding of gender and in the fight for equality for women. Women have fought long and hard for better education, for job opportunities and for equal pay. At the heart of this fight has been the often unequal balance within the home and the expectation on women to bear the brunt of child rearing and domestic labour. At the first National Women's Liberation Conference in 1970, one of the four central demands was for free 24 hour nurseries. 
The lack at this time of affordable, reliable childcare meant that when many women were unable to go out to work and were therefore forced to stay at home with their children. By demanding free childcare across the full working day and night, mothers could have the choice, if they wanted to, to combine paid employment with their caring responsibilities. Traditionally, raising and caring for children has been seen as women's work, but the women's liberation movement challenged this idea. The women involved in the movement wanted recognition of the importance of motherhood, while also enabling both women and men to take equal responsibility for raising children. During this period, both men and women in the movement promoted alternative childcare and domestic arrangements. Throughout history, women have often been deemed to be intellectually inferior to men. Women's studies was a revolutionary new discipline in education proposed by feminists in the 1970s and 1980s to move away from the deficit model of women as lesser men. In 1980, a group of women in Norwich established a women's studies collective, um, which was independent from any other organising body. The Women's Studies Collective ran courses on health, civil and legal rights, culture, film, television, psychology and creativity, and politics and public institutions. The courses were self-financing with a maximum charge of 50p per session, and they were attended by hundreds of women. The group also set up self-help and discussion groups and provided a forum of communication between the various feminist groups and other women who'd previously not identified or work with the women's movement. The aim of the Women's Studies Collective was to empower women and to validate their own experiences and knowledge um, outside of traditional education. The collective noted that many women were encouraged by their participation in women's studies to gain in confidence and to involve themselves with other areas of feminist campaigning too. I'd recommend um, finding an article called Women's Studies, Women Studying or Studying Women by Liz Kelly and Ruth Pearson, which was published in the Feminist Review um, number 15 in, in 1983, um, which explains more about the motivations behind the women's studies movement. So despite all attempts to silence and misrepresent them, Women have found radical ways to make themselves heard in different spheres. And they've for a long time found imaginative and powerful methods to protest inequality and to demand change. And not just for women's rights, but also for wider social issues too. The women's liberation movement was formed of young women who were living in a period of rapid social and cultural change. Many were also active in civil rights, in peace and new left movements and had the skills to spread their message in really powerful and varied ways. During the Cold War, women became the driving force of the anti-nuclear movement in Britain. In October 1979, it was announced that 140 cruise missiles with nuclear warheads were to be stationed in Britain, with 96 at Greenham Common in Newbury in Berkshire. In the summer of 1981, a group of women organised a march from Cardiff to Greenham Common under the banner Women for Life on Earth. These women established a peace camp on the Common and started a non-violent direct action campaign. This included creating human chains, chaining themselves to the fences and holding up mirrors to symbolically force the base to reflect on itself. 
Women travel to Greenham Common from all around the country, including from Norwich, and that's what the poster on the left here is showing. Um, it's advertising coaches departing from Norwich Theatre Royal, um, leaving on a Saturday morning, coming back on a Sunday afternoon, at taking you to Greenham Common. The camp at Greenham was active for over 19 years. The poster on the right here is showing a similar women's peace camp that was established at the former American airbase RAF Sculthorpe near Fakenham in Norfolk. This was one of the 12 UK sites which was lined up to house US nuclear missiles in the 1980s, but it was never finally chosen. And there were three campaigners um, who were part of this um, women's only peace camp, Lynn Fort, Susan Cox and Dinah John, who cut the fence at RAF Sculthorpe in protest, refused to pay the fine and were therefore sentenced to 14 days at Royal Holloway Prison. The sixth demand of the women's liberation movement was the right to a self-defined sexuality and an end to discrimination against lesbians. In 1986, Section 28 of the Local Government Act was introduced by Conservative MP David Wiltshire. This bill prohibited local authorities from intentionally promoting sexuality or publishing material with the intention of promoting homosexuality. Under this legislation, local authorities were not allowed to promote the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. Section 28 became law in May 1988. And in response, the Norwich Section 28 Working Party was established and they had their first meeting on June the 13th, 1988. The aims of this group were to monitor the impact of Section 28, particularly on local council policy and provision, for example, on housing, education and in libraries. The group met regularly and asked for information from workplaces and trade unions about policy on Section 28 and any evidence of individuals or groups being negatively affected was collected. The censorship of books and information seen as promoting homosexuality was common and public libraries felt under pressure to remove all LGBTQ content from public access, including books, support directories and health information. The assertion that LGBTQ families were pretended family relationships had a negative impact on support services for families and impacted on the ability of gay families to access social services or adoption services. Prior to the 1990s, 2000s, it was common for lesbian mothers to experience prejudice from medical professionals, from social workers and from the legal system. Lesbian or bisexual women who were getting divorced from a, from a male partner would most likely lose custody of their children. Assisted by the support networks established by the women's movement and also the gay liberation movement of the 1970s onwards, lesbian women with children began to challenge the discrimination they're experiencing together. Breaking the Silence was a 1985 British documentary which looked at the legal and social problems which lesbian mothers faced. And you can see on the poster on the right here, um, this video was shared as part of a Lesbians with Children event. However, progress was slow, uh, in part due to Section 28 and also the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act in 1990, which specified that the provision of assisted conception should take account of the child's need for a father. Until 2005, lesbian couples could not legally adopt children in the UK.
Often denied a place in official histories and arrays from literature, art and music, women have uncovered, recorded and celebrated women's stories as a political act. Women have communicated their vision and expressed themselves creatively through pamphlets, zines, literature, art and music. Creative work is not a peripheral part of the women's liberation movement, but needs to be understood as an integral part of the movement. The Norwich Women's Film Weekend, which these two posters here are representing, was an annual two day film festival hosted by Cinema City in Norwich, which ran for 10 years from 1979 through to 1989. It was the longest running women's film festival in the UK, and it was founded by a group of women called the Cine Women, who identified a need for a film event celebrating women's contributions to film and secured support and funding from Cinema City to establish the annual event. They also offered training courses and educational opportunities for women interested in film and television. The Cine Women worked hard to make the festival as accessible and inclusive to women as possible by providing affordable food for accommodation for women who were travelling um, from outside of Norwich and Norfolk and also, all importantly, they provided childcare if needed. The women's movement has been criticised, quite rightly, for its white and Eurocentric focus. By the late 1970s, black women were organising their own groups and there was a new recognition that women of colour had a different agenda from white women and that white dominated feminism didn't always take this into account. Norwich Women's Centre were quite early in developing an anti-racist policy, which demanded a thorough review to ensure that the centre was as inclusive as possible. And this meant um, subscribing to women's magazines from different cultures, buying dolls of different races for the children's room, and also making sure that the Women's Centre publicity reached all local communities. These two posters are from 1991 on the left and 1993, advertising events by the Norwich Black Women's Group. This group was affiliated with the Norfolk and Norwich Racial Equality Council, and it was formed by support organisations to support in particular black asylum seeker and refugee women in the city. Over time, feminist awareness has grown of the ways in which true liberation involves a deep consideration of the connections between class, race, sexuality, disability and religion. So I just want to end by highlighting these three books which I used um, in the research of this presentation today. In particular, the book on the right, Unfinished Business, The Fight for Women's Rights, which is the exhibition catalogue published by the British Library to accompany their exhibition. If you have any questions about anything I've talked about today or about women's liberation in Norwich, please leave a comment or get in touch with heritagecentre at norfolk.gov.uk. Thanks for listening.